0: and welcome to Dead Feminist where I talk about horror movies and think about them just a little too much. My name is Jade and today we are looking at Hereditary. Um, This was Ari Aster's 2018 feature film debut and it was literally one of 2018's most talked about releases. It was everywhere. Um, If you have somehow not seen this film or had it spoiled for you over the last two years I really really recommend. Uh, go watch it. It's two hours. It's so good because I'm like I'm going to be summarizing the plot of the film start to end. I'm going to be talking about like obviously the ending, the twist throughout. I'm gonna be sort of you know giving my thoughts on what it means and what the deeper meaning of it all is. So grab your tea, let's get into it. <laughs> Hereditary really starts and ends with Ellen. So, the first thing we see, literally the first screen, is her obituary. (laughs) She's dead. (laughs) That's not funny. You know, she died and she is survived by her daughter Annie and Annie's children Peter and Charlie. It is worth noting here as well that this is where it's first mentioned that Ellen's husband and her son, so Annie's dad and brother, are both already dead, keep that in mind. So we, you know, from the perspective of the camera, we pass over uh, a a collection of like miniature buildings and structures before landing on the house and zooming in to one room. Like this shot is, it's so cool. I love it. Um, we go from being in the dollhouse to being in the real house with peter in bed steve coming in waking him up for the funeral um so steve asks he comes in he wakes up peter he asks if he's seen charlie i'm gonna come back to the dollhouse no uh he asks if he's seen charlie peter says no i haven't seen her and steve finds charlie asleep out in the treehouse and he wakes her up you know he's telling her go get ready your mother is waiting in the car and Annie, Steve, sweetie, like, I don't mean to tell you how to parent. Maybe wake them up before you're literally leaving to go to a funeral. Um, you know, that might just be me. Just a thought. So, at Ellen's funeral, we get, you know, a bit of exposition, um, so we find out that Annie's relationship with her mother is, let's say, complicated at best um she says she literally says it feels like a betrayal to be standing at her mother's funeral talking about her mother who the you know the funeral is for it kind of gives us an idea of the relationship between annie and ellen and you know it is shown a little bit more after the funeral um you know when they get home when annie you know she's like asking steve like should i be more sad like she it's like she doesn't fully know how to feel which you know is I f- I feel like that's a relatively common kind of reaction to grief, but it is something that is an, also in this context is an indicator of what the relationship was really like. Uh, we're gonna talk a little bit more about Annie and Ellen a lot more, really. Um, <laughs> for now, we're gonna back to like this, this the the plot of the actual film. So at the funeral, uh, we also have Charlie's nut allergy. That is uh, established before they before, before they leave. Charlie pulls out her like, chocolate bar for her pocket, starts eating it. Steve comes over and, you know, that doesn't have nuts, does it? And he's like, that doesn't have nuts, does it? We don't have the EpiPen. You know, they're kind of fussing over her. It just establishes she has a nut allergy. We've also got at the funeral the symbol on like the necklace. Uh, so Ellen wears it in her, her casket. They're doing an open casket funeral. Ellen wears it. Um, Annie wears it, she's like wearing it as she's giving her little speech and you know like Charlie, you know she goes to like see the body and like say goodbye to her grandma I guess. Um, And she kind of turns around and there's this guy kind of like back and he's got the biggest creepiest grin on his face and he's just staring at it, I think he waves. It's just, it's uncomfortable. He just he looks so unsettling. It's like massive smile is so out of place at a funeral. Um like if I was a thirteen-year-old girl at a funeral, if I was a thirteen-year-old girl, period, and someone was looking at me like that, I would be power walking the other way. I'd be out. No thank you. Um, I just wanna quickly mention here Rexy, the dog. Uh we meet him when they come home and he's just being a good boy. Um, and this is a warning that he does not survive the movie. You have no idea, like, how sad I am. I hadn't seen it in a while when I was re-watching it for this video. I forgot the poor dog died. And then I saw his little lifeless body and I was so sad. Um, it's it's not super graphic, to be honest. It's it's done quite well. You see his little shape. Uh, he's like a little shadow you know it's pretty dark um you can't see the details he's he's not moving he's not moving uh and it's like this is a sad film it's a horror movie but it's also really sad (laughs) Uh, i appreciate that the puppy's death was he's not a puppy he's a big boy but i call all dogs puppy um but i appreciate that Rexy's death was you know handled tastefully for those of us who just routinely cry over dogs just existing but like um, you know you could have had one little one little cutaway shot of him just bolting down the driveway like he gets out he leaves <sighs> It's just so depressing. And I know his name is probably Rex, but Steve calls him Rexy. That is the life I am about. Um, this is my first, what I'm going to call a pet check. So, you know, like I do want to bring attention to the treatment and sort of handling of animals in various hormones, even if I don't include it in my analysis. So this is going to be like the first patch where I just kind of pop in through all points of the video and I say, hey, here's what's happening with the animals in this story. Um, personally, I don't like when animals are hurt in any movie, let alone in a horror movie. Um, like, I will cope with the people dying, don't hurt the animals, you know? I just want to draw attention to where it makes sense within the plot and where it's just gratuitous. But thankfully for Hereditary, it does make sense. So back to the plot, um, after the funeral, you know, everyone's kind of dealing with Ellen's death in their own ways. You know, like Annie comes into Charlie's room, comforts her, you know, she's telling her, you know, you were, you were grandma's favorite, you were Ellen's favorite. Okay, so like, side note, this, I love this so much. This is why I love this film so much. There's so much story told through like these tiny interactions and just like this, you know, Annie saying, you were grandma's favorite. Um, and Charlie saying, Oh, grandma wanted me to be a boy. I don't think Helen would have said this to her. I mean not directly. Learn a lot of things about Ellen, but I don't think she would have said this to her apparently the favourite child. Um, <laughs> at least not directly. But i do think Charlie's very perceptive even if she doesn't fully realize that she's perceiving these things um yeah i think charlie is very perceptive even if she doesn't always you know fully recognize what she's perceiving like even when like she was a kid i think she's been this perceptive for a long time i mean she's still a kid she's 13. um i just really i always overthink films so i really appreciate it when there's actual something there for you to overthink i like that So while Annie is trying to cope with her mother's death, you know, she's going through boxes of old things up in the attic, and she finds a letter saying, forgive me all the things I could not tell you, and that their sacrifices will pale compared to their rewards. What, Ellen, that's Ellen's final words to her daughter. Now, Annie had already said at the funeral, Ellen was quite private, so she doesn't seem too surprised at the letter saying, you know, Talking about the things she couldn't tell her. And When she wants to leave, she, you know, flicks off the light and she sees Ellen standing in the corner watching her. She, when you know, she turns the light back on and she's gone, so it's okay, right? So the kids go back to school. Um, Peter seems to be coping alright, you know, he's being a teenage boy. Um, there's this girl called Bridget. She sits. Um, like in front of him in class, he stares at her But I don't know, he's like 16, 17. I don't know. Um, you know, his friend texts him if he wants to get high, sort of like turns about, uh you know, he doesn't pay attention in class basically. Um, I went to school with people like this. This is a nice little it's realistic to me. They, okay, so they, I think they're in like English class or something. So the teacher is talking about this, the story they're studying in the class, and if it, the characters having control over their actions makes their fate more or less tragic, something like that, and this one kid is just like, less! She just says, why? And she says, because! It's just, oh, I mean, how does it feel being the funniest person in this movie, you know? Even though Peter seems alright, Charlie seems to be struggling a bit more, you know, she's like, sketching instead of doing her test, which kind of gets her of trouble with her teacher, Um, she's not massively paying attention. And here is time for another pet jack, even though it's not technically a pet because this is where a pigeon slams into the window of Charlie's classroom, instantly dying. Charlie steals the scissors from her teacher's desk and you know, you're thinking, oh, what's she doing with those scissors? She goes and she cuts off the head of the pigeon and like pockets it like she just takes off the head and is like, yeah, I'll keep this. That's kind of it. Like she can see a woman like outside the school grounds watching her take off the bird head. It's kind of it for now. It's a weird scene, especially first time viewing. So later, Steve gets a call from like the, I guess the funeral directors or maybe it's the pe- the cemetery people. Basically, Ellen's grave has been desecrated. He doesn't tell Annie this. Um, like it's like he wants to protect her from the stress. Um, and, you know, Annie tells Steve she's going to the movies. Bye. She's actually going to uh, like a group support session and this kinda kickstarts these two like lying. At least not being fully honest. You I mean, I've got any straight up lies. Um Steve's just not fully honest with her. No, actually. Sorry. No, actually he straight up lies. But for the group support session, we get this really nice big stop of exposition. Annie is, you know, talking about her relationship with her mother, the deaths of her father and her brother, the guilt she feels and how she doesn't feel supported by her family, which that is probably why she didn't tell Steve where she was really going. There's just- there's this really nicely framed shot with Annie in the middle like slowly zooming in and I just love Tony Collette. Like, can I just point that out now? I love her so much. She's so good in this. Everybody is so good in this but I love her. So the next, you know, little while is pretty much them living their lives and dealing with the aftermath of the death. Peter is like smoking at night so he's kind of like hanging out of his window so I'll, like try not get caught uh, so he can smoke his weed and you know his friend texts him and invites him to a party you know cool you've been through a lot kid you know go have some fun but okay so oh my gosh so he leans out of the window to like blow away the smoke and in that shot you can see the treehouse and okay so this is gotta be like all winter time that this is set because you can for the treehouse from Peter's window you can see his smoke from the treehouse you can see somebody's breath like it's cold enough to see the person's breath. It's so- someone's in there. someone's in there. somebody's watching him. who is in there? it's such a subtle little thing. um i love how like a lot of this is done quite subtly. you know it's not uh, i'm done with like massive like music cues, draw your attention to it but i'm just like who's there? i don't know. i don't know. I- it's not charlie. Why would she care enough to watch Peter smoking and texting, and it's not Annie or Steve? Because at this point, Charlie's the only one who would sleep in the treehouse, and it seems like she mostly just does that uh when she's sad. And she seems—I mean, she's sad, but like she's okay enough to sleep in her own bed. So who's in there? So hey, Peter's going to a party. Cool beans, kid. Um, <laughs> you know, the next day since this, is what, this happened at night, we're in the next day now, and Charlie's in her room. She's sketching. She's. I think she's snacking um her her nut free snacks she sees this like orb of light sort of dancing about her room and it kind of goes out her window it's weird you know she's like standing on her bed like, looking out the window being like and just and then we've got annie and her miniatures and peter comes in to ask to borrow one of the cars to go to the party which okay uh, I'm sorry. Hello. One of the cars. One of the cars. Like, okay. So Steve is a, is a psychologist. He's like you know, Doctor Steve. We see him sending an email to like a coworker, and you know, we see his email address, and he is he is Doctor Steve. And Annie's an artist. And they have two teenage kids. How much money are they making? That they have this really big, nice house and at least two cars. At least two. Peter to ask for one of them. God how much do they make? Anyway this conversation—if the conversation feels kind of awkward to me as an outsider like if I was at my friend's house and uh my friend started talking like if I was Peter's friend and I was at his house at this time and he starts talking to his mother like that I would be so uncomfortable it just it feels like their relationship is a bit strained and he's like mirroring his behaviors which he's again he's what 16 17 it's not great. It's not a great situation. Um, Peter kind of plays it down. as like a chill gathering, which it's a, a a movie party held by a bunch of teenagers. That's never a chill gathering. So Annie is just like, oh, are you taking your sister? And speaking of Charlie, right now she's walking through the grass of their massive back garden. Like this, is like, this thing's like a field, but she's walking through the grass. She's holding the pigeon head like a. she's cupping in her hands like an offering and in the distance she sees ellen surrounded by fire um so annie finds charlie she yells at her for going out without shoes charlie's kind of sulky and you know i want grandma and we're just gonna ignore the fact that she's just talking about with a with a pigeon head that's cool annie we're just gonna ignore that annie pretty much forces charlie to go to the party i understand it's important for kids to socialize and you know, she's been through a lot, she probably should use some time to have fun, but oh, Annie, sweetie, no, you're gonna wish you never did that, I'm sorry, but, mmm. <sighs> so, okay, Peter drives Charlie to the party, Um, they drive past a pole, it's like a thick, thick wooden pole, uh, and it's engraved with that symbol that was on Ellen and Annie's necklaces from the funeral. That's suspicious. Peter finds Bridget at the party, the girl who, you know, he was looking at her butt, and there's like this like awkward conversation. He's trying to be cool, she's having literally none of it. She has zero interest until he busts out the weed, and she's like, oh, there's a bong in the other room. Now, poor Peter, I do kind of feel for him. He thinks he's getting a long time with Bridget. No. Suddenly, his weed is everybody's weed now. Um about it, you know? So she takes him to a room with a few people, they all start smoking it. Enjoy this last moment of peace because soon Charlie comes into the room, she ate the cake that was going about and it had nuts in it. She's going into anaphylactic shock, she can't breathe. scene is it's, it's, it, it, it's intense to say the least. Um, You know, Peter is trying to drive Charlie to the hospital um, because she's dying, he's high, he's speeding, and she is practically hanging out of the window because she cannot breathe. You know She's trying to get some air, and then there's this deer in the road, and then Peter swerves so they don't hit the deer, and then it's... <sighs> they killed Charlie. Like, she was all... Over the marketing of this movie. Her and Annie were like the main figures in the poster when this came out. It's like roughly halfway through ish. A little under maybe. I can't remember the exact timestamp. They killed her. She's dead. <sighs> Two years on this. Is- yes, um, Peter swerved. She hit her head on that pole and now. She's dead. Her head is, it is off of her body. It is on the road. Her body is in the car. Her head is on the road. Peter is in shock. I mean, he just killed his sister. Of course he is. He is so in shock. He drives her body home. Head's on the road, body's in the car. He drives her body home. He goes to bed. He goes to bed. Annie is in bed with Steve and you know we can hear her saying like oh good they're home and she doesn't know that the next morning she goes to the car to go wherever she's going and she finds Charlie headless and dead in the back of the car. This part is actually so hard to watch like she's crying and wailing and screaming and you know, like Charlie's being buried and we uh, we do see her head on the road after it's been left there overnight. And Annie is just she's just struggling to cope. You know, she's struggling to find reason to go on after this. Um, she starts sleeping in the treehouse like Charlie did. She sneaks out to the grief meeting, and she keeps saying I'm going to the movies. How many movies do you go to? That this is a believable lie. Yeah, she's she sneaks out to the grief meeting. Um for the first time since her mom died. This has been like a little bit of time, I think. And she's about to go in, but then, you know, I guess she decides that she can't do it, she can't face it, she turns around, you know, starts to turn the car around to go home. And this is where Joan comes into the movie. She comes chases her down, flags her down. Joan, actually, you can see her in that first group meeting scene after Alan died, but she didn't say anything. She was just there. Uh here she, you know, she gives Annie like her contact details. She's like empathizing with her. She's like, you know, I, you know, empathizing that she's, she's lost, lost people. And like, here's a spoiler that I'm about to talk about in like 10 minutes. Anyway, Joan does not have Annie's best interests and heart. I want her to, but she doesn't. Um, I want Annie to have a friend. That's all I want, but I have so much hope for Joan, but no, no. Um, it's a sad, sad film. Friendship isn't real, um, but there's at least this great little moment where you know Annie keeps trying to go home. She keeps trying to leave the conversation, and Joan keeps talking to her, and she just says, "My son died," and Annie just goes, "Oh, <laughs> it's not funny. It's it's not." That is literally how I would react if I was just trying to leave, you know, and the person was like, my son's dead Like, I'm sorry <laughs> No, okay, so um Later while Annie is working on her miniatures the paint Fall over by herself No, it doesn't it falls over by <laughs> for God's sake. Later when Annie is working on her miniatures the paint just falls over by itself like it's bright blue paint is rolling over this little table It distracts her. You know, this kind of brings her back to Joan because sitting next to, to that, that table, no, sitting next to the paint, oh I can't talk anymore, sitting next to the paint on that little table was the piece of paper that had Joan's number. I got it out in the end. You know, she sees her trying to clean the paint up, she goes, she has a cup of tea with Joan, she's confiding in her about how she feels she talks about this incident where she was sleepwalking she covered peter and charlie with paint thinner and just as she woke up she had lit a match and was trying to burn them all Charlie woke up before she could kill them but uh oh peter woke up as well and oh let me tell you, that's gonna put a damper on a relationship with your with your parents so okay speaking of annie and peter's relationship Uh, we fought the dinner scene oh wow the dinner scene so it okay so it starts with annie she's working and steve comes in to her little workshop room and she says no he says sorry it's time for dinner she says oh i'm making dinner he's like no i make i made dinner i did it and he's angry he's snapping like he's mad at her for focusing on her work rather than making dinner and it doesn't get much better. I th- I think his anger is just more at her, um, not paying attention and whatever. But um, it doesn't get much better from there. Like the dinner itself is really awkward. And uh, soon things bubble over, and Peter and Annie start go watch. If you don't watch anything else from this movie, go watch this scene. It's so good. It's so good. Everyone, acting here is so good. Um, like Peter looks so shocked and sad and a little bit scared and. Annie just blows up like she's screaming and her emotions just pull they're just, just rushing out of it she's been holding it and bottling up until now. Staple's like he's gonna cry. He looks angry, frustrated, he's grieving. They all look so sad and angry at the world and at each other and it's like they don't even know how to rely on each other because they've all been so closed off from each other that now they just kind of can't open up anymore and so Annie is shouting and screaming and Steve interrupts her interrupts the flow of of this outpouring. Uh and she leaves. She she with she uh goes, she withdraws from them and this is you know, the state of her home life when she meets Joan again. So Joan and Annie meet again in the like car park of a craft store. Joan's like you know, she's flustered. She practically Like falling over herself uh, to tell Annie how she wants to see a medium and she understands that Annie would be skeptical because she was too you know Um, and isn't it wonderful how now she can she can talk to her dead grandson again you know she gets Annie back to her flat and she shows Annie how to channel the spirit so she can talk to Charlie you know it's pretty simple you say this thing in a language that is probably Latin I don't really know uh, you gotta make a bond with the spirit through an item. So for Joan's grandson, this is old old chalkboard Now that chalkboard remember how I was saying Joan doesn't have any best interests Yet yeah, if you look carefully during that scene in the cardboard, you can see that chalkboard that kid didn't have that chalkboard for years Joan bought it. She had it for like an hour So whatever she's talking to, I don't know who it is, but it might not be your grandson Anyway, the the seance does work, and Annie understandably like, freaks out. So after this, she starts having her nightmares. You know, she dreams, she tells Peter that she'd never wanted to be his mother. But, you know, she loves him very much. Of course she does. I mean, I'm not, I don't mean that to sound sarcastic. She genuinely, she genuinely loves her family. She's just having a hard time dealing with things emotionally, and then, you know, suddenly the two of them are doused in paint thinner, and oh, suddenly the two of them are on fire maybe she thinks she can mend the bonds with her family with the seance like getting some kind of a closure uh after what happened with charlie i don't of course that doesn't that doesn't go so well she actually though does convince both steve and peter to join her which is actually pretty good because steve is like very like where annie was like was pretty skeptical steve is very skeptical i mean you know know he's dr steve so it starts out all right not much is happening um charlie's sketchbook is annie's link to the spirit that she's using you know that's a little candle. blah 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 it's a seance scene we've all seen seance scenes in movies um there's like subtle signs that something's going on the characters pick up like peter says the ear is flexing uh which obviously you can't really show cinematically (laughs) steve is the only one pick up on anything kind of possessed by the spirit yes asking why everyone is scared why are you scared of me where is my mom i want my mom it's switching in and out annie's voice until steve like throws water over her which i guess interrupts the i don't know connection but she comes back you. she's like herself again and she doesn't remember what happened and she doesn't know why her son is crying god i wish that was the worst thing that happened to this family but no we're still going <laughs> Okay, so when Peter is at school, which okay, he should not be, Steve, doctor, therapist, psycho, um, no, what, what, psychologist, that's the word, Dr. Steve, why is your son in school? Been through a lot. Your boy needs therapy, why is he in school Steve? He's in school and he sees that same orb of light that Charlie saw um you know when she like went outside with the pigeon head. He looks in this like cabinet thing that light like, leads him to. It's you know one of those things like English class the store books in like a big cabinet and like window panes. Just like that. He looks in the window at himself and his reflection is smirking at him. He's not smirking. But his reflection is. That'll be like if while I was recording I stopped talking and the me and the camera just kept going. So Peter apparently calls Steve, thinking something is after him. Steve kind of, you know, has a wee argument with Annie about it and sort of insinuates he's protecting Peter from her. That her, you know, talk about ghosts and stuff is what's causing breakdown. Um, so after this, okay, so she's not in a great headspace right now anyway but she gets a voicemail from uh, the gallery that she's promised this collection of miniatures to but that's about the timeline of her project and while she's hearing that voicemail she like, breaks a little, breaks a little chair and then that's sort of, a sort of it you know, she goes to the, she goes into this like fit of anger Steve finds her on the floor just sat there surrounded by the smashed remains of all her hard work we see her working on that a lot, and she just breaks it all. So, oh, so Peter sees Charlie standing in the corner of his room at night, um, and then her head rolls off, as you do. And oh, now it's a ball rolling across the floor. Oh, so that would be a weird enough moment for him. But then, like you know, some hands to sort of pop out of the wall, grab his head, like pulling at him, like they're trying to, you know, take it off. Um, Annie comes in. And Peter blames her for sleepwalking and attacking him and and Annie's of course thinking like the spirit is malevolent Um, It's attached to me through Charlie's sketchbook. I can end this if I destroy that bond So she goes downstairs to the living room to burn the book because they have a fireplace because they are very rich (laughs) and You know, she tosses the book in, but then her arm catches on fire and it doesn't go out until she pushes the sketchbook out of the fire and puts it out. And by this point, Steve is sleeping on the sofa and you can just like see him in the background just asleep. Like, my dude, you should have woken up. If you'd have woken up, this could have been different. Um, so Annie tries to go to Joan for help, but apparently she's not home, but there is ritualistic stuff over her flat. And there's a photo of Peter. So this is where we, uh, first time viewers, where you have it confirmed, Joan is pretty, pretty sus. Annie sort of looks at the doormat Joan has as a handmade one. She mentioned that her mother made some like it before. She kind of gets a little light bulb going on. She goes home, goes back uh, through, you know, that box. She goes home and she goes back through that box full of Alan's stuff. And she finds a bunch of those same mats so, with you know, her family's names. Like there's Peter and there's Charles. Charlie did say grandma wanted me to be a boy. In fact it seems like Paimon wants to be a boy as well because this is when Annie finds the book on Paimon which is one of the kings of hell and you know all her mom's cult stuff which including photos from like the, this ritual where they're showering Ellen with gold coins and photos where Joan is there. Joan is there. Joan. I wanted Joan to be a friend so badly but no. No, that would be too much. Also, Ellen's in the attic. Uh, remember I mentioned Steve gets a call that a grave was desecrated? Yeah, she's in the attic. Remember how Charlie saw her sitting surrounded by fire? Yeah, uh, it's Ellen. She's burned and now she doesn't have a head. So while this is going on, Peter is at school and from like outside the grounds, Joan is watching him, which is kind of creepy, and she's yelling at him, you know, like, Peter, I expel you. Um, When Peter is in class, his arm, like, shoots up. And like the teacher calls on him because, of course, but Peter's not lifting his own arm. It's like a puppet on a string. That's what it looks like to me. And then, like, it's letting him go and pushing him down. His face just slams into the desk, and he just falls back screaming. And this moment is terrifying. And as sudden as scary as this is. And his screaming is so hard to hear. When I was rewatching the film, um, I noticed this one guy just like pull out his phone and just start start filming Peter, which okay, yeah, that's how a teenager would realistically react. But like, come on man, you've you've had this kid in your class all year and he's screaming and just give him a moment. I mean, okay. Everyone's already watching him, but okay, it's not like no, he doesn't need this moment immortalized. But spoiler, it's not gonna matter to Peter himself after tonight. Okay, so Steve drives him home, school calls him, um Peter is unconscious, his nose is taped up because he, you know, smashed his face into his desk and broke it, probably. Annie, when they they're driving home, Annie's like trying to tell them about, you know, Ellen in the attic, but of course, like she sees the state of Peter and understandably she's panicking over her alive son rather than her dead mother in the attic. She helps Steve to carry him in. Uh, Steve, you know, settles Peter into bed, sleep, night, Annie. And after that, Annie, uh, tells Steve about Ellen in the attic and how Charlie's sketchbook burns her when she tries to break the wall to stop this and oh my god, there's this beautiful heartbreaking scene. As, Annie says goodbye to Steve and begs him to throw the book in the fire because she's not strong enough to do it. And it, it's it shows just how much love really is still there. Annie is like sobbing; she's saying goodbye. You can see Steve trying to not break down himself. I mean, he's been through a lot. Like, I feel like as, he's as a character is kind of overshadowed, but you know, he's not going through it. Steve, Dr. Steve, his reaction is completely within his character and from his perspective is the best course of action. He says he's going to get Annie help. He won't play along with these games of hers anymore. It's not healthy for her. Not healthy for her, sorry. Annie gets frustrated. She grabs the book. She tosses it in the fire. But Steve burns up and dies. Like this moment, this death is basically two for one because Steve burns up and that's. Annie is fully possessed, she's broken emotionally, she can't cope anymore, she's fully possessed now. So Peter wakes up and it's dark, he doesn't notice that Annie is crouched up in one of the corners of his room, like on the ceiling, like crouched up like that, but on the ceiling he doesn't, no he doesn't notice that. Uh, you know, there's no sounds of life in the house so he's gonna, he's gonna go have a look. He's gonna go try and find his parents, so he he, do- he does, he finds Steve. Crispy. And if I remember right, that guy from the funeral, the creepy smiley one, he's in the background. Uh he's naked. Because of course, why wouldn't he be? But that's not, actually not what Peter is most concerned about because, oh here's Annie, and she's chasing him into the attic. And she's banging on the attic door, which, okay, context, an attic door is on the roof, right? It's, on, it's in the ceiling. Um she's banging on that and peter is begging for her to stop and it's so so sad and it becomes so creepy when it sean like she's banging fast like bang, bang 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 and she's clinging to the attic upside down like she was it is like she if she was kneeling on the floor except she's on the ceiling and she's banging with her head peter sees the outline of where ellen was she's gone now her body left a gross outline In the middle of it is a photo and it's him with his eyes carved out and then the banging stops and there's another sound. Annie is above him now (laughs) hovering, severing her own head with what I think is a piano wire, I think that's what it's called. And just it's a combination of this, he turns around there's three more naked cultists, he can't cope anymore, he screams, he launches himself out of the window. And he lies there, on the ground, and the orb of light dances over him, disappears, and he rises, and he clicks, which is uh, Charlie's little, little little tick. It's just a little like, Kah. as Annie's corpse floats up, up into the treehouse, he follows her, and this final pet check is where we see little Raxi. We don't see him, Mentioned earlier, we don't see it in great detail, but goddammit, the dog is dead. So in there is the cult. Annie and Ellen and they are all kneeling, before a statue with Charlie's head on top of it and there's a crown popped up there. Joan stands up. Um, aside from you know his two dead family members, she's actually the only one not naked. And, and Joan, so Joan gets up and she takes the crown off of Charlie's old head and puts it onto Charlie's new head. Joan calls Peter Charlie, and then tells him he's actually the demon Paimon. They have corrected his first female form the cultists give him a hearty round of hail paymon the camera zooms out and it ends like it began with a dollhouse the treehouse suspended in darkness with these little figures yelling hail paymon <laughs> okay uh by my estimate that is the entirety of a two-hour movie in about 20 minutes. Um, I did say up top that, you know, you should go and watch the movie for the full experience because obviously, you know, me sitting here isn't the same. Um, But, you know, if you didn't, that is, that's the short version. That's the version which you were all on the same page. So let's start with the question I think everybody had leaving the cinema. Um, what's up with Paymon? Yeah, comes in seemingly quite abruptly in the last little bit there. It took some effort, but I think I know where Paimon is throughout this. Who has him? So we're starting with Ellen. In the photos in her scrapbook, the ritual that they do is what I think uh, summons Paimon for like the prosperity of those in the cult. Now Annie says she wasn't... All together there the end but in the photo she seems lucid enough and healthy so I think the ritual took place quite a while in the past um, so I think she acts as a temporary host and tries to give Paimon a more permanent host in her son who was Annie's brother. I think with Paimon when somebody's a host for him the only way to fully release him is by decapitation and to receive him someone has to either be willing um, to share their body or completely broken down to allow him to take control so with that in mind um, I think this is, you know, why Ellen died of natural causes instead of by a demon uh, Because she was willing. Um, by the time Ellen was like even kind of successful in <laughs> By the time Ellen was like, you know, even kind of successful in getting her son to be a host for a um, Annie said that his suicide note blamed Ellen for putting people in him. Now, I did say that decapitation is how to release payment, but I think it maybe wasn't a full possession. It just says that he hung himself. You know, it didn't say he hung himself and his head came off. It might have. We don't know. But you know, I'm calling this like a metaphorical decapitation for an almost possession. I mean, you know, it's the metaphors or whatever that, uh, Ellen's husband starved himself to death which obviously is completely horrific and I don't know maybe she tried to put payment in him I don't think she did because that's not decapitation and she never she like never tried the cult never tried to do it with Steve um, I think it has to be within Ellen's bloodline which is why it's important that during the seance um, you know um, Peter could feel the air flexing but Steve couldn't because Peter is obviously in Ellen's bloodline He's a direct descendant Steve, isn't He's an outsider in terms of uh, the familial bloodline. Her- ugh. Ellen's husband is a little debatable since he's not her bloodline and that wasn't a decapitation but she would have had a lot of influence over him. I don't know. It, maybe, maybe his suicide was purely mental illness related and not demon related. We are going to talk about mental illness so that's coming later so strap in, we have more. we're only just starting. I think after the attempt with her son failed was when she started putting pressure on Annie to have kids because at that point she thought you know if Annie has kids um, and she has a boy there's a new host. Um, she didn't want to put the demon in Annie because Annie wasn't a male host but she had damaged her relationship with Annie so much that by the time Annie was actually, you know, she had Peter, uh, Steve had helped Annie to keep Ellen away from them, but, 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 Ellen was very manipulative and she got her way back into their lives. You know, by the time Charlie was born, uh, she's, she latched on to the wicked. Uh, she breastfed Charlie. I don't know how possible that is, but apparently she did. Maybe this was like, feeding her Paymon, I don't know. I think she she was effectively transferring Paimon into... I think that's what um Charlie had picked up on, you know, when she said grandma wanted me to be a boy, was so that Paimon would have a male form. I think by the time, you know, she was bonding, let's call it that, with Charlie, Ellen knew she was starting to run out of time. She was getting old. She didn't know if Annie was going to have another kid. You know, she's already had two. And she didn't, I suppose she didn't know if she would be able to stick around long enough to grow up and have children. If she didn't give Paimon to somebody, the ritual they did would have been for nothing. So I think by Ellen's death, Paimon was almost like all but completely inside Charlie. So like, you know, in the scene where after the funeral where she's saying, who's going to take care of me? I don't know. How much of that is Charlie and how much of that is Paymon? It's the same thing when she said grandma wanted me to be a boy, which is something I gotta... Mm, keep that in mind, that, you know, this may not 100% be Charlie saying these things. Okay, so by Ellen's death, Paymon basically lives in Charlie but can't fully take her over as a host because his connection with Ellen hasn't been severed, you know, she, he's been rooted there for years you know? When that is why the cult dug her back up and ritualistically burned and decapitated her. I th- also think that little orb of light that was like floating about, I think that's Paimon or like the visual representation of him. Like, like I don't know, but that's, you know, so Charlie sees the Paimon light and then it's a little after that Ellen gets decapitated and then that's when Annie forces Charlie to go to the party. So, so this is when the cult is just like you know let's move through this valley and get to the boy we can probably do this you know so I say the cult I think they did orchestrate her death they the, the wooden post it had like their symbol engraved on it the one she died on so I think they had they definitely had something to do with it and it, it was all to try and get to Peter as a host now in that book the book of fame on it. It mentioned that it possesses the most vulnerable person. After Charlie's death, even after he technically killed his sister, Peter wasn't the most vulnerable. It was Annie. And after Steve died, which I think the reason he burned it was Paymon using him to break her Annie down completely. That was it. You know, like this that shot where her face just goes slack. That is her being possessed and t- completely taken over. Um, that isn't Annie anymore. That is Paymon. But he still wants his male form. He still wants Peter takes completely overwhelming him and making him watch his mother saw her own head off and see all these naked strangers in his house and his dead dad and just everything that made him vulnerable enough that made him toss himself out the window and made him open to pay. Now Annie decapitates herself uh which releases paymon from her and then he is goes into Peter because he's broken enough. Peter is his male form. Now um if I say Haymon is trans, can we please not do to him or to them what we did to the Babadook and make them a gay icon? Oh, and that also happened to Pennywise, like, can we not do that? He's a demon. I'm not saying, like, can we not do that? It also happened to Pennywise. Why did it happen to Pennywise? Why well, did it didn't happen to Baba Babadook? Really? But can we not do that? Okay, but all jokes aside, if I say there's a discussion around gender identity in a horror movie with a demon, people are gonna look at me funny. Until I talk about Charlie mentioning grandma wanting me to be a boy. Until I talk about Annie mentioning she was a tomboy growing up. You know, is that maybe Ellen enforcing male rules onto her? Until I talk about the line, we have corrected your first female form. Do I think Paimon is a transphobic entity? No. I think he's commentary about enforced gender by those around you. So the book says Paymon is a male entity and therefore wants a male form. The book tells us that. Something that's something, the book is something that somebody else wrote about Paimon. Paimon possesses the most vulnerable person available. It's the cult that leads him to Peter. He fully possessed, you know, the other members of that family. Before Peter, but it was a cult pushing him to Peter. To me, this is like enforcing gender. It is an experience of many trans kids um, that you know, unfortunately, their parents or their families even aren't supportive of them and who they are, and they try to enforce their assigned gender birth rather than their actual gender. You know, and that's that's very harmful to me the the passing of the possession and the efforts of the cult to get it specifically into a male form destroying the family on the way is like how destructive transphobia is for trans individuals and who experience it and how it can it can damage them and their relationships with their family i mean it's no secret that trans kids are more at risk of suicide and and self-destructive behaviors if if they're not supportive, it's it's no secret that trans kids are more at risk of, of suicide and of, of self-destructive behaviors, you know, if their families and people around them aren't supportive of them and who they are. I mean, wow, what a concept. Right supporting your child leads to a happier, healthier child that doesn't kill themselves. You know, if they do make it to adulthood, the person might cut their family out of their life completely you know, end up and they, they, they find a home with, with like a chosen family rather than their given family. In terms of the film, I suppose the question is who does Paimon end up with? Because if we are taking Paimon as the trans kids, the actions of the cult strip away the potential, those potentially supportive relationships and leave only the controlling relationships of the cult. They say they worship him. It's almost like gaslighting, you know, we love you can't be abused by us because we love you and we worship you therefore you know this is your body this is a gender this is your name this is who you are you know it's it's control and it's the control and you know if we were talking about a child rather than a demon this would be seen as abuse with the veneer of love covering it so if we're shifting the focus away from payman for a hot second, we turn to Ellen. Uh, she's obviously a massive f- driving force within the film. You know, she's a figure almost constantly looming over Annie who sees her in, in the dark corners of the room. You know, she makes figures of her standing in the doorway of her bedroom. Did I say in the doorway of the room? Shifting the focus away from Paymon, we turn to Ellen. She's obviously a massive driving force within the film. You know, a figure almost constantly looming over Annie. You know, she sees her in in the dark corners of the room. She sees her in the figures that she makes of her standing in the doorway of her bedroom, of her taking baby Charlie away from her. At one point, very, very literally the dark secret in the attic. Annie has a complicated relationship with, you know, she loves her because she's her mother and she resents her because of how manipulated she's been through throughout her entire life I mean it was Ellen who was the one pushing Annie into having kids Annie tells us this herself you know like in the dream she has where she tells Peter she never wanted to be his mother she says it was Ellen pushing her into having the baby she said she tried to have a miscarriage but it didn't work and that she's happy now you know she she loves her son of course she does but I have to wonder if there's a fear of turning out like her mother, and if it wasn't for Ellen's insistence, would Annie ever have actually had children of her own free will? I mean, while Ellen possibly did cause her son's death, and the cult did cause her daughter Annie's death, Annie nearly caused the death of both her children in the paint thinner story. If you think about like motherhood and reproduction in this way, it's portrayed in horror we can get a little bit more of an insight into this so okay I'm going to get into theory like full-on film theory for a moment there's a book by Barbara Creed it's called the monstrous feminine it's a good book it's about femininity in horror in relation to psychoanalysis it was a good read even though I have my own issues with Freud and pretty much the whole basis Um, of psychoanalysis, I have my issues. The second half of the book focuses in more on the Freudian theory. Still, there's some use to it in terms of- But The second half is more psychoanalysis, but the first half is more horror and film theory. So, you know, we use this book, sprinkle in a dash of Julie Kristeva, who is another theorist, using these two as my main sources for the- as, uh, yeah, my main inspirations, let's call it, for this little bit. Horror is scary to us because it crosses set boundaries of the self and of society. So for example, Rosemary's Baby is scary because it crosses the boundaries of individuality. Zombie movies are scary because it crosses the boundaries of death. Pregnancy can be scary because it crosses the the, the boundaries of the body, of the skin, you know? In any other situation, aside from pregnancy, those symptoms would be horrifying. In the film industry, which is historically male dominated, the ability to reproduce and to mother another can be scary. It gives a power to the individual that someone born male just can't get to. And to some, this might be threatening, especially in America where Hereditary was set and produced. There's the, the ongoing Debates about reproductive rights and Planned Parenthood that come through very strongly in the film, actually. For Ellen, you know, she's the mother to be afraid of. She's using her children as a means to an end, as vessels for a demon, or as production factories for more vessels rather than actual people. Barbara Creed calls this archetype the archaic mother, the mother who won't let go of her control of her children. We can also see it in, like, um, in Carrie, like her mother. We also see it a bit there. And this is very fitting for Ellen in that, that not letting go of that control, even in death, using her cult as an extension of herself. You know, continue her control and manipulation of the family. So Ellen is not only the archaic mother, she's also representative of the pro-life debate So, she's the one pushing Annie into having kids in the first place, not caring about what happens to them beyond her own goals, not caring if Annie even can provide the quality of life that the kids deserve. I mean, obviously financially between her and Steve, they can mentally, can she? We don't know. Now, I don't know if you've, (laughs) but it seems everyone everywhere is super mad about everything. All the time, <laughs> but all seriousness, there is a parallel to be drawn here between the pro-life movement and Ella. I'm using the biggest air quotes there, who basically take away, you know, access to healthcare services like abortion. You know, not everyone who falls pregnant does it on purpose or is ready to be a parent. Annie wasn't ready to be a parent. How is it pro-life to? You know, take away that individual's decision to the rest of their life of their life in favor of what at that point is a clump of cells. so the term of pro life comes from them apparently standing for the potential life of this clump of cells uh, this is a largely uh conservative slash like republican view, depending on where you are, and um another one of their views seems to be in. Taking aid away from parents, so you know, whether that be like difficulty in accessing food stamps in America or like free school meals in the UK. Seems that pro lifers only really care about the life until it's born. Then you're on your own, kids. Like, I'm sorry, but what? In terms of the film, Ellen is a fun combination of this and the archaic mother you know she uses her own children as demon hosts she pressures Annie into having kids to make more demon hosts. She not only disregards annie's individual al- individuality as a person and everyone else's for that for that fact she also disregards like an I'm getting mad Annie is Ellen's child no matter how old she gets Ellen is still her mother and a child has a right to safety from their parents Ellen ignores that completely disregards that it's very fitting for a horror movie though you know since western society tends to put so much emphasis on individual individuality why can't I say that <laughs> and and it's important so to a Western audience, it's terrifying the concept that your mother, the person who is supposed to take care of you and protect you, would could be such a source of of your misery in that in that dream. Or Annie talks about you know trying to have a miscarriage and she dreams she burns herself and Peter alive with the paint thinner. Annie tells Peter, "I was trying to save you, save you from what." Like, on a surface level, sure, you could argue, you know, save him from the demon, from the cult, but there was no realistic way for Annie to know about that when she was pregnant with him. that's, you know, depending on how old Peter is, 16, 17, it's maybe 17 or 18 years ago. You know, like, in the, in the, the group therapy session, Annie tells us there's a history of mental illness in her family. You know, um, Ellen had DID, her father had depression, her brother had schizophrenia, maybe also a demon. She herself has issues expressing her emotions. She's prone to bouts of anger. She's a bit paranoid. Uh, Peter is apathetic. Charlie has a vocal tic. You know, the, 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 there, there's no diagnosis offered for Annie and her kids. The only ones who get an official, this person had a mental illness, is Ellen and Annie's father and Annie's brother. And obviously, like, for, Annie and her kids quite a bit, will it be the effect of grief? That—that That is sadly what grief can do to a person, although Charlie seems to have had the tick from before. Um, but it's possible that this genetic predisposition to mental illness is what Annie wanted to save Peter from. Even though Peter seems to have largely escaped the hereditary mental illness, he couldn't escape the hereditary demon. It's a bad joke, but that is what's hereditary. The mental illness, the demon, all of it, it's passed down from Ellen through her bloodline. So at the end of it all, we have Paymon, the gender identity crisis demon. We have Ellen, the pro-life archaic mother infecting everyone in her bloodline with gender identity crisis demons, and we have Annie, who's a scared woman trying to protect her children while also trying to not become her own mother. First time watching it, it is a dark. I have lost track of how many times I have seen it by this point. It is still a dark, sad film. Don't get me wrong, but there's so much more to it than that. The more you watch it, you, you pick up on these little details, and it's beautiful and it's tragic, and it's really well crafted and well made, while still being so accessible to horror fans. And also, as I note, the words on the walls so it's um i have written here it's sage Honey, and zazas you know like those ones that strike a chord with annie so much that they she she paints them into her miniatures and that like in that scene where the paint falls over leading her to joan that's what she's painting them in i think they're spells when joan yells at peter from outside the school gates before she starts yelling like i expel you presumably meaning i expel you from your body uh, she says, oh lord, uh, Zantand, Dagnini, a paragon. Like she yells these things at Peter. I think like this, these little spells that they wrote about the house, maybe there's more that we never saw in the film but I think that's part of how the cult kept their control over what was what was happening. Um, Annie mentions that you know Ellen did live with them for a little bit so it could be that she gave they call a copy of the key and that's how they've been getting into the house, it could be something as mundane as that and they've just been going in and writing it on the walls. That is hereditary. I saw it in the cinema and I absolutely loved it two years ago and I love it now. This video is, this series really, is something I've wanted to do for a while. I'm really happy to be able to start off this series with this film cause I just love it so much. I will at some point be taking a look at Ari Aster's second feature length film, Midsommar, which came out in 2019, uh, near enough a year, almost exactly if, if I remember right, a year later than Hereditary, but it is December, it is the festive season, so next time I will be looking at Better Watch Out. You better watch out you better watch out you better watch out Um if you like this video feel free to you know leave a like and a comment and let me know and let me know what you thought of this Um was there anything you think I missed let me know and subscribe as well to know when I upload my overthinking and my ramblings and until then <laughs>